budgeting, cash flow, and investing don't have to be scary words. The We Talk Sense podcast is here to help you learn more about money and take control of your personal finances. The We Talk Sense podcast is not a financial advisor. This podcast is made for entertainment and educational purposes only. All information shared is of a general nature and does not take into account your personal situation. You should consider whether the information is appropriate for your needs and where appropriate, seek professional advice from a financial advisor. For more information, please check out wemoney.com.au slash disclaimer. G'day, welcome to another installment of We Talk Sense, a podcast presented by WeMoney. As always, we're joined by me, Dan, your resident finance guru. And me, Blaze, your recovering spendaholic, shopaholic, recovering spending addict. (laughs) Today, we are talking about saving on school supplies, how you can stock up on everything you need to go back to school or uni without breaking the bank. And very on trend, we have a teacher joining us. His name is Joel. He is the history of money from TikTok to chat all things cash and currency. First up, let's talk news. So if you'd rather skip the headlines, no worries at all. Just skip forward about four minutes and you'll get to meet our guest. Dan, news headlines. What caught your attention last week? Well, Blaze, what caught my attention last week was the deluge of offers that people got on credit cards and balance transfer offers. I think that now credit card companies are seeing the ability of or the opportunity of people that have overspent over Chrissy and looking to potentially acquire new business at very, very attractive rates. Uh, So that was uh, something that I got bombarded with in my email inbox. How about you? Dan, before we move on, what what is a zero, what are you saying? A balance transfer offer, is this, I'm assuming this is a credit card product? Blaze, a balance transfer offer is what credit card companies do to uh, win new business. And the way they do that is, say, if you've got a credit card uh, balance of, say, $5,000, you're paying an average interest rate of around, say, 24.99% or even as high as 29.99%. Yikes. Yeah, it's pretty high. You may be able to transfer that balance. So say you've got $5,000 maxed out on a $5,000 limit credit card. You can transfer that to another credit card that may have a $5,000 limit or even more and pay 0% interest on that balance for, say, of a period of, say, 12 to 18 months. And that helps people save, obviously, on the balance uh, or, sorry, the interest on their credit card. But the major driver for a lot of banks and the reason why they offer those products is they will know that you will not pay that balance off in full and then there's an opportunity for them to make money over time. And so that's probably one of the biggest uh, the biggest forms of customer growth that a lot of banks see during this time is giving people uh, those balance transfer offers. So if you're a person that's in that situation, I would think twice about doing it. Uh, obviously, if it makes financial sense for you, please do explore it. But put a plan in place to make sure that credit card gets paid off in full because if you leave the balance, you may have to pay all the interest again and again and again. And that can obviously lead to a lot of uh, bad outcomes if you don't make that, uh, make all those payments and more importantly, you know, end up paying thousands of dollars of interest unnecessarily. Very interesting. So the 0% is really just a, a hook in the sea and credit card customers wanting to switch and save money on the interest rates so the fish swimming around looking for that nice bit of bait on the end, which is what they're offering, it sounds like. I couldn't have said it better myself, but it's a great analogy. Dan, the headline that I found this week, 
Oh my gosh, it ugh, it makes me both laugh and cringe. Are you ready for this? I want your real honest reaction. I hope you haven't seen it yet because, oh my God. Pardon, Blaze, hit me. This is straight from 9news.com. You ready? American programmer has two password attempts left to access his Bitcoin, now worth $300 million. Oh, my goodness. Doesn't that just make you cringe? So according to the article, he forgot his password, obviously. Uh, the Bitcoin wallet had allowed him to have 10 attempts. He's made eight of those attempts, and so now he has only two tries left before it encrypts. And there's a quote from him in the article that says he lays in bed at night and just thinks about it, and he's super stuck. Well, what do you even do in that situation? I forget my password on a daily basis, it feels like. I feel for the guy. Oh, my God, boys. If I was him, the things that are going through my mind at the moment and how important remembering that would be, you know the first thing I would do is I would go see a hypnotist and try to extract oh. it in some way, shape or form that gives you the best chances. Or even what I would do is I don't know how these crypto wallets work, but you know, if you're really keen on getting it, is there any way that you can maybe – get it from the company or give somebody like a $100 million bounty to maybe like get it on your behalf. I mean, $300 million. That is... That's so much money. It's life-changing. That would like That's obscene, obscene money that if you lost that, God, I don't know what... I think your, 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 your opening line at parties would be, I'm the guy that lost <laughs> $300 million. Um, <laughs> it, it would, uh, it reminds me of that story of a, a guy that I think lost a similar amount. This is going back to 2017, so I actually think this is probably uh, this number is probably going to be even bigger now. But a guy that threw away a computer in the tip, and this is 2017 numbers. He had 127 million dollars worth of Bitcoin, uh, and he paid uh, a company to go and grab an excavator to excavate piles and piles of. Uh, garbage and a tip to see if they could find his computer. Obviously, wasn't successful, but oh my goodness, I think people are reeling really right now that man, you gotta gotta remember your passwords, particularly when there's uh, so much crypto on the line. Oh my gosh, I wonder what his password is. Is it just the regular like yeah name of your first pet, like Red Rosie three point two or whatever it is, or is he has he got the like capital P nine zero underscore space like. Oh, gosh, that, anyway, that, that caught my attention this week. And hopefully, I mean, good luck to him. Two attempts. Hopefully he maybe sees a hypnotist and that works for him. We shall see. And, Dan, I do have one, one more thing to share. It's not quite news, but it's something I learned from last week. So last week I was saying how I received some Christmas cash and because I use neobanks, I couldn't find a way to deposit it. Well, oh, yes. I did some research. And I found a solution. You can deposit, but it's through Australia Post. So you can head to the post office and deposit that way. So there is a solution, albeit not the easiest or most convenient, seeing as Australia Post has very short opening hours for someone that works full-time. But there is a solution, so I'm very happy with that. That's all supplies. That's a great hint tip for people that are considering near banks. You know what? My post office is actually closer than any bank that I bank with. So that's, that's actually pretty convenient. Oh, lucky for you. Well, should we get into the rest of the episode, Dan? Let's do it, please. 
The time has come. A lot of full-timers have left their thongs at the door and had to don on real pants and clothes again and head back into the real world as full-time work started back up for a lot of us around the country last week. Now, for kids around the country and uni students, your time is about to follow suit. It's back to school time and we're not far off being back to uni or TAFE either, which is why we thought today we'd take a look at how to head back to school, head back to uni, get all your supplies without breaking the bank. So, Dan, I have a question for you and I understand you have a two-year-old, so this is probably more of a guess from you rather than experience unless he's a really, really smart kid and is like in year four already and has skipped a bunch of grades. (laughs) Is he a child genius, Dan? Is your kid a child genius? Well, if you say child genius on uh, straddling... Uh, a ladder to get to the top shelf to seal the cookies, then, yeah, he's an absolute genius. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's actually three now, Blaze, and guess what? He's heading into kindy in a month's time. So this couldn't be more relevant to my own personal journey, and I've done a bit of research. So it should be interesting to see how this all compares. I remember my childhood going back to school. Look, uh, God bless my parents with uh, what they had for me and my sister back at the time. But uh, it's it's actually a big deal now. The back to school thing is advertised on TV. There's endless ads about it. It's a full blown event that you know mums, dads, everyone has to go through to get the kids ready to get back to school. It's a huge affair. Yeah, for sure. Dan, how much on average do you think Australian parents are spending on each kid when it comes to stocking up on school supplies? Blaze, this is going to shock people because yes. H2B1 pencils cost 90 cents, but then you add in (laughs) the pencil case, you add in the ruler, you add in the glue stick, it adds up. It's a shocking, on average, that people that spend about $590 on school supplies per child in 2021, which is an increase of $54 from the previous year, which is an absolute monumental number when you really think about it. And, and you know what? That's their per annum cost. And most kids, if they're going through regular pre-primary to high school, those just costs end up increasing over time. That's crazy. $592. Now, from, okay, as a school kid, I would not have believed $592 per kid. But seeing as I remember it being, it's etched into my brain many years ago when I went to uni, one of my textbooks was over, a single textbook for one unit for one semester was over $200 and that that pretty much almost killed me. <laughs> that was essentially what I was making in a week back at the time when I was working in a car wash. Um, <laughs> so 592 sounds like a lot for school kids but in my mind not a lot for uni students given that textbooks can really, really add up and be really, really expensive. Mm. But then school students, if you've got kids going back to school What's what are some what are some ways to save? How can we save on going back to school? Well, Blaze, probably a very non, not traditional one, but if you take a, a leaf out of my mum's book, uh, almost twenty years ago, what she did was had a look at the price list for the school uniform and quickly threw it in the bin, walked her way into Big W, <laughs> got the thinnest, most cheapest polyester shirt that closely resembled the school colour, and um, there you go. Me and my sister were were the, were the ones that you can easily spot from the school photos because we had like four shade off blue from the school <laughs> uniform. <laughs> Uh, but if if you don't want your kids to be a social outcast um, and cough up for the school uniform on average 
parents will spend about 180 bucks to clothe their kids in the school uniform, which you know is a huge amount, and they're growing quickly. You'll end up using it for once or twice. Uh, 180 bucks, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. How can we save money on that? What are your what's your tips? What my tip is is that um, a lot of people would have the school uniform uh, department at the school oh, just go buy the secondhand ones, right? Um, mm. Or try to find a hand me down from other uh, you know parents that you know with kids that have sort of grown out of their clothing that's sitting in their uh, you know wardrobes doing nothing but collecting dust and make a big appeal to people that you know within the school because chances are you probably will find. Uh, parents with even their sheer generosity, depending on how friendly you are with them, may actually give them to you for free if their kids aren't using it anymore. Or check out the second-hand ones because you know what? Why pay 180 bucks where you can probably pay a half of that or even less by getting the second-hand ones and the clothes? Yes, the kids are going to scruff them up and dirty them up, but if they make it to be sold in the second-hand pile, just have a look. And they're just good as new and you can save yourself a lot of money. You probably give your kids something else that's probably beneficial than, you know, buying those brand crisp new school uniforms. Yeah, yeah, good good advice. Uh, my school, my entire school uniform, I don't think I had a single thing brand new um, except for hats because I regularly lost those and had to either borrow them from lost property or get my mum to buy me a new one. But everything I had was all secondhand. And it doesn't matter, you know. it's It really doesn't matter as long as as long as all your bits are covered and <laughs> you've got got the school crest or everything, whatever you need on it, yeah, for sure. Also, I saw I saw some advertising. I think it was Best and Less the other day, but they were doing a um, a discount on school clothes or some sort of buyback program. I'm not a hundred percent across it because I'm not going to school. So, but that's something worth checking out and seeing if any if you do need to buy brand new if you can get it cheaper anywhere else or if there's any buyback programs or any cashback programs on offer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Blaze, I think the, the first thing to do uh, for all parents is do a stock check of what you've already got. If you have a look at that list of things that you need to give the kids, you know, the parents, the school often insist that you get everything perfectly, but you know what? A pencil is a pencil, a red pen is a red pen. You've got those stuff at home. There's no point paying for stuff that you've already got. And making a point of finishing pens, you know, how many pens do you end up collecting? I know I'm probably guilty of this. Oh, I've my got gosh. A bucket of them. I'm actually using actually one right now uh, that I, I plan to live out its uh, its full life and I'm almost there. I got it from Ikea for a dollar and it is nice. to be a long time. But you know what? Your, your kids are not going to mind if they're using pens that are hand-me-downs. So wherever you can save money, just do it. Go down that list and just don't worry about keeping up with the Joneses or making sure that your kid sort of stands out. Your kid is not going to remember this period of time and you're probably going to have things that are probably better than what's on the school list anyway. So just use the stuff you've already got. Dan, that's an interesting point you make about finishing pens because pens, I treat pens like lip balm. I buy a new one, (laughs) I start using it, I'm loving it, and then all of a sudden... It's completely disappeared and I haven't finished it. So finishing stuff, definitely. And also taking stock of everything you have is also good for the environment. It not only like it doesn't only save your money from buying new things, but it can keep stuff out of landfill and yet yeah, can can help you live a more sustainable life, which and any good impact on the environment I'm totally for. So I, I support that. What's another tip for saving on school supplies, Dan? Uh, do your research and find the best prices. I mean, oftentimes your school gives you like a recommended list of things and if there's things that you can get, there might be alternatives. 
then have a look around because often the school supplier that um, is often recommended or used may not be the most competitive and you might be able to find you know, better and cheaper prices out there that are not from the recommended supplier where you may be able to get away with getting something a lot cheaper. Uh, I would also have a look at the quality of things rather than the quantity because sometimes there might be some stuff that you want to give your kids that uh, may be very cheap, but you've got to ask yourself the question, mm, is it a $15 pair of uh, sort of shoes going to last one semester or two semesters or I'm going to have to go back to the shops and buy it again. You know, sometimes it actually does make sense if you really believe that a brand that you trust that you know will last a long time, probably better to invest in something that's going to last a long time. I'm always going to get up hit again and again for things that can often run out of quality. And I think I'm speaking to a lot of mums and dads here. I think the craze that has taken over schools is lunchboxes. Are you familiar with this new lunchbox craze, Blaze? I have absolutely no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. What do you mean? A lunchbox is cool? Oh, my God. Lunchboxes are so cool. And if you don't have the hippest lunchbox, you are going to be the odd one out, apparently, according to some kids. Uh, the new craze what? now on lunchboxes, yeah, have, have, there's basically this new uh, phenomena of what's known as a bento lunchbox. And it's made of this super hard plastic or sometimes even metal that's like coated with some type of special uh, material that basically compartmentalizes everything for your child. So you can compartmentalize their sanger, their fruit, their little yogurt, whatever else, and you can customize it. Um, for people who are fans of Bluey the cartoon, there's like Bluey uh, lunch boxes. And do you want to take a stab at how much these things cost? I don't even want to think about it. What happened to the brown paper bag? Um, <laughs> what happened to the glad I... wrap just chucked in the in your backpack, let alone a, That's a, what a I lunchbox? Did. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I, I'm going to say like 20 bucks for a lunchbox. Forty nine ninety five. For a large oh. personalized bento bluey lunchbox, this is insane. Oh my gosh, I know that this is an audio medium, but I would like you all to know at home that I am cringing right now. $49 that's outrageous! Oh, that is ridiculous. A note on Dan, I had a thought about uh researching, finding the best prices, and getting quality over quantity. Could you use programs like Shopback or, you know, Shopback, the app where you buy through the app and then you can get cash back based on your purchases? It would be great to see if you can get school supplies through apps like that and then you can actually earn money back on your purchases as well when you're doing your research. Oh, yes, 100%. That's so true. I think there's an explosion now of all these uh, uh, platforms like uh, Cashback, Cash Rewards, Shopback. There's probably 10,000 of them out there and basically... Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, with those platforms, is as long as you use the referral codes or go and shop for the product using these apps, you can get you know sometimes up to fifteen percent back on your purchase if you spend a certain amount. That's an excellent way for people to save a lot of money. Yeah, awesome. Um, I've had an idea, Dan, on how to save on back to school, go on. but it is stolen, and I stole an idea last week. But we just have really, really wise guests, so this is a this is an idea stolen from. Saurav Dutta, who came and spoke to us about the four common debt traps. Shop solo. Remember when he said going shopping solo can help you save money because you're not there surrounded by your friends going, oh, you look gorgeous in that. But in this case, it's you're not surrounded by your kids going, I really, really need this $49 lunchbox or I really, really need this brand new set of textures or whatever it is. Um, 
so my input for how to save on back to school would be take Sarav's, take Sarav's advice and shop solo and avoid pester power by doing it alone. Mm, absolutely. That's a really, really good one. The last thing you want is your kids saying, can I have that? Can I have that? And especially if you're going down the aisles of Kmart and everything costs like one or two dollars or three bucks, you're more than likely to completely overspend. That is awesome advice. Do you know what I did this year, Blaze? I thought, I thought to myself, I'm not going to get caught up in this back to school revolution. What I did is I only ordered the uh, critical items that I couldn't find anywhere else and I did it online so I didn't have to go uh, to the shops with my little one to actually go through the point of uh, finding the stuff because I knew he would have asked me for certain things or, or really been uh, you know, potentially a pain as we're sort of going through and figuring out what to actually get him. And it was it was an honestly easy breezy experience. I ordered online, everything arrived within two weeks, and now he's ready to go. That's awesome. I didn't realize what you have to get stuff for kindy as well. This is crazy. This is like so many years of buying supplies for kids from them being so young to all the way up through to TAFE or uni. Anyway, Dan. Any final bits of advice on how to save if you're sending your school kids back to school? Blaze, I would say one of the most common ones that people often forget about is, yes, you're scanning those points for your flybys or your uh, reward program, but a lot of those reward programs might actually allow you to buy certain stuff for your kids. So, for example, you may actually have the ability to use, say, your flyby points or other reward points to buy from shops that are focused on back to school. Um, stuff like uh, be that kids' clothes or kids' shoes that often people forget about as they've done all that Chrissy shopping, spent probably thousands of dollars on things at, say, Coles or Woolies or other places, but realizing, hey, probably a good time to use some of those points might be actually back to school. Okay, rewards programs, good one. Blaze, one of the best things you can do at this time is as you're thinking about money and thinking about okay, you're probably doing a good job by listening to financial podcasts like We Talk Sense. This is one of the- Good job. (laughs) Shameless self-plug. But if if you think about yourself, you think about how you had your own money experience and for those who had wonderful money management experiences in your childhoods, that's amazing. But isn't it a really cool time as their brains developing at a point of soaking new information to tell them about and educate your kids about the importance of money and money management? And as they're going into school, they're not only learning about shapes and colors and sentences and grammar, but also about some of the good concepts concepts around money that you can infuse in a really fun and exciting way. One uh, parent we were talking to had a really, really great uh, tip. As her kids grew up, what she did was she gamified the approach of saving on power and electricity, where basically she would whip out the electricity bill talk about how much the electricity bill they had to pay, but also talked about the importance of turning off lights when they were unnecessary, turning off things that were on standby that were just sucking electricity, uh, going through some Mm -hmm. other tips to save money. And basically, as the bill arrived in the next uh, mail, they would see how much money they saved by the activities that they did by uh, reducing their own utility expenses together as a family. And I think this is a really important time where you can teach your kids about the importance of money and finances as they go through their early formative years. That's a really good idea. Setting a budget with your kids, helping, like encouraging them and training them and enabling them to make their own decisions and see exactly where it is the money is going. 
that's something that I I kind of wish if I could turn back time, I wish my parents would do with me rather than just saying we can't afford that, explaining why and then helping you to get a better grasp and understanding of how finances work and that money doesn't just go on trees like my mother always used to say to me when I was growing up. And I'm, I'm totally guilty of this, Blaze. I, I'm, I'm not perfect with money all the time. But one of the big things that I've that I've realised is that kids understand, and you're not going to let your kids down by saying you can't afford something. Or I know we want to provide the best for our children, but there is something very valuable in saying, "Hey, we can't afford this at the moment, but over time, if we end up uh, doing really well this year with other things in our life, we may have the ability to save and actually buy it when we've got the money." And what that is telling kids is that there is a pathway to getting what they want by doing things that are valuable. For example, you know, doing chores that can help them save additional money to get the things that they want. That can teach them lifelong lessons about the importance of money as opposed to just giving them everything you want to because you want to shower them with love and affection. Yeah, for sure. Really teaching the value of items rather than just saying yes, no, can can buy, can't buy. Dan, let's move on to uni students. So or TAFE students, or if you're doing a course, or if you're a young adult and you're or you're a returning material student, whoever you are, if you're not in school but you're going back to learn this year and you need to stock up on staff, what are some ways as an older student that you can save heading back to study? Well, Blaze, the, the first piece of advice is go find one of your mates that's got a Costco card, go buy a <laughs> 100-pack of Mega Rig noodles and you're set for the semester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually very, yeah, I wish I had a Costco card and 100 packs of Migarang purely for the taste. As it, like, you know, cost efficient, yes, but I, I actually love Migarang. It's a oh, guilty pleasure. Oh, save here, save here. I love it. Once a year. That's that, that's my Migarang uh, budget for the year. <laughs> well, Blaise, for most uni students, the best thing you can do is sign up to all the rewards programs. So you've, if you haven't heard about all the awesome companies out there that are helping students like uni days or student Edge, sign up for those platforms get onto the newsletters check out their websites there's going to be heaps of savings for you whether that be discounts on computers discounts on food discounts on other things that are appropriate to your student life uh, so get onto those as soon as you can because there's no point realizing that you could have saved money by using a discount code or a voucher when uh, those services are available so uni day student edge get on it i do miss the student discount what else, Dan? Textbooks. So this is a big one. Like uh, you mentioned paying, what, two, 300 bucks for a textbook. Do you even remember what it was? Oh, gosh. Yes, I do because I am triggered. Do you know what? It's actually, it's actually <laughs> embarrassing given this podcast. It was my accounting textbook. <laughs> and I had to repeat. So when I say I'm not good with money and I'm a shopaholic and a spendaholic, I really mean it because I, I'm like, oh. I'm still scarred from spending that much money on a book for a unit that I failed and had to repeat. So that's why you're the finance guru on this podcast, Dan, because you've got <laughs> way more of an idea than I do. <laughs> well, Blaze, you know what? I mean, I sort of skimmed it out at uni and the biggest sort of advice you can get is don't fall into the trap of buying that nice, shiny, brand new textbook that you're going to use for literally 10 to 12 weeks. Try one, find one secondhand. Uni professors, I think it's an absolute rot. They just write a new edition every single year. They change the chapters from, you know, chapter two to chapter 15 and you get all muddled. Even if you get the older editions, it's still 
you know, doesn't really matter. And you know what? The internet is so powerful these days. A lot of these concepts that you learn at uni are going to be open sourced unless there's any specific course guides or whatever else. But wherever you can, just buy secondhand. Don't get lulled into this uh, trap of buying brand new. You don't need it. You're going to forget about it. And to be honest, a lot of people actually forget about a lot of the stuff that you learn at uni. So in the long run, it may not be critically important to buy something that is brand new. So secondhand, Gumtree, eBay, Facebook Marketplace, just give it a crack before you end up shilling hundreds of bucks on books that you are going to forget about. I wholeheartedly agree. Secondhand is the best. However, if you happen to be in China and listening to this podcast, maybe secondhand isn't the best because something I learned about seven years ago from someone, an international student that I studied with, was that in China, if you are buying a secondhand textbook and it has the person's notes in it from their studies, they actually sell at a higher price because they've got they considered to have more value. Oh, so wow. I thought that was really interesting because over here we usually sell secondhand for for less, whereas over there it's perceived as having more value because there's more knowledge and more notes, which I thought is very interesting. Oh, that is pretty. It's pretty amazing. Um, I just, funny enough, I just remembered something. I I bought a brand new textbook, and I realised that a lot of the information in that textbook was actually available online and I still yeah. had the plastic cover on the textbook after the unit finished. So sometimes if you're really like a little bit suspect about the value of the textbook, you may have actually needed it all if you can find the information online and some of the concepts you can learn. So yeah, don't get caught with the trap mm-hmm. of buying stuff brand new or whether actually you actually really need it as well. Awesome. Dan, I found a really good program that if you're a if you're a student um, you might be interested in. So it's by ANZ. It's called a Saver Plus program. So eligible students can go through a free 10-month program. By the way, we're not affiliated with ANZ. I just thought this was a really great program and that if you're interested, it might be something worth checking out. So essentially, students go through a free 10-month program to learn about their finances. The program teaches you how to save consistently. The goal is to save $500 in a year. If you do the whole program, learn about your finances, show that you consistently save and reach that $500 target, ANZ will give you $500 to match your savings to be spent on school supplies or kids if you have kids. I thought that was a really great initiative. Um, It's not available to everyone, so definitely go check out their website if it's something that interests you. Um, You have to be 18 years and over. You have to be studying. There's a lot of different requirements to be eligible, but Free $500 and financial education, like that is a huge win for me. So definitely check it out if it takes you fancy. 500 bucks, that's some big bickies right there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's quite generous. That is incredibly good. And you know what? I mean, it forces you to save and you get double the amount. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah, 50%. Is that 50% interest? No, it's 100% interest. That is 100%. You see, I don't do maths. <laughs> Again, you're the expert. Dan, do you have any final tips for uni students heading back? Blaze, the final part is drop your subscriptions. I know that you probably signed up to a lot of free video on-demand services like Stan and Hulu because you had plenty of time off over the semester. But the reality is 
if you're a diligent student like most of us are <laughs> listening to the to the pod, is that you're probably not going to have the time to go through and keep up with all these descriptions. So just get rid of anything that you don't need, anything that you got sort of lulled into over the break, any promo that you actually clicked on and subscribed for, just get rid of it. The last thing you want to be doing is having your bank account being eroded away uh, over the semester or the term uh, where you're spending a lot of money on things that you don't need. So this is a great time of the year to review all your subscriptions that you're not using. Yeah, great. Well, that's all about back to school or back to uni, back to TAFE, wherever you're heading back to without breaking the bank tips. Now, if any of these tips were interesting to you or you have a friend or family member that may benefit from these, please do us a favor and share this podcast episode with them. It really helps us when we're making the podcast and we love knowing that we're out there helping people to save money financially. So chuck us a like, a subscribe, and share it with friends and family. We'd really appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Hey, Blaise. What did you learn in high school history? Oh, goodness. Let me just remember about high school. That's, that's, that was a bit of a blur. <laughs> Cast your mind back. Cast your mind back. I can. Uh, high school history. My goodness, I don't even actually think I even took history at high school, believe it or not, Blaze. Um, I think it was called social studies at the time. I think we learned about World War yeah. II. We learned about Australian history. Uh, but it's becoming a blur. How about you? Um, I also can't even remember if I took history, which is probably if I did take history, I apologise to my history teacher because I can't remember anything. The only history that I remember from school is learning about the gold rush but the reason I am asking about history is because today we have a very special guest. He's a high school teacher that knows a lot about the history of money, which is probably something that is not taught in school. And if you can't remember it, Dan, were you taught the history of money in school? No, I don't think I was. I think, I think I've heard about little bits and pieces of it post high school, but no, it certainly wasn't, wasn't taught in high school. I definitely didn't learn about the history of money. I mean, gold, the gold rush, pretty close, but definitely not the history of money. So today's guest is a high school teacher that shares his knowledge on subjects including economics, business management and accounting to students mostly in year 11 and 12. He's completed a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Economics at the University of Western Australia and has over 10 years of experience managing a family business. Plus, he's generously donated his time and skills as treasurer for two different not-for-profit organisations. He's an avid traveller. In fact, in the lead-up to COVID, he was on a plane 87 times in the three years leading up to COVID, which is pretty remarkable and I'm very envious of all of the frequent flyer points I'm sure he's amassed. <laughs> not only that, he in 2020, he started a TikTok page educating others on the history of money. As I'm sure you can tell, he's passionate about business and money, and he joins us now via video link to talk about exactly that. Welcome, Joel Candia. Hi, Joel. How are you going? Morning. Yeah, good. Hi, guys. How are you going? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Joel, now you're a school teacher, so you must be the envy of all of your mates right now because you have the luxurious extended school holidays. Yeah, it's, it's a great perk, but um, also we, we work hard for it, so... A lot of my friends claim that I don't do enough work, but that's fine. As long as I get these six weeks off, that's great to do what I want, especially making more TikToks, which is great fun. 
to do. <laughs> TikTok, amazing. I think we've seen the rise of the FinTocker uh, and the Finfluencer community of everybody turning to TikTok as a form of education, particularly now during COVID, yeah. as everyone's been sheltering at home and not really having the ability to go out and about. And TikTok has really taken off and given people the opportunity not just to watch cool, you know, funky videos to Taylor Swift background music, but also to learn about finances. Um, we'd love to hear your story about how you got into uh, TikTok and more importantly, um, your background in the history of money. We'd love to learn more. Um, yeah, I, I got into TikTok pretty much like a lot of millennials did during lockdown, that first lockdown in mid-March where, all right, we're at home, we can't really do much, maybe apart from eat, drink, exercise a little bit. And I was like, <laughs> few, of my, few of my students before um, lockdown said, oh, there's a thing called TikTok, it's very fun, people do dances and stuff and so I wanted to try and have a look at it and, yeah, there's, it was going, you know, dances, 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 like I can't do any of that stuff. And then I saw a few interesting <laughs> history things, a few, you know, economics things, like especially Planet Money who have a very good TikTok account, which are based from NPR in the United States. So they do a really good TikTok account. So, okay, maybe I can try something. And I did one on the history of the $5 note. No, actually, no, before that, I was I had a video from a couple of years ago and I was in Canberra in front of Parliament House. And I had a $5 note and I've looked at it and I've panned the screen up to Parliament House and I go, ah, there you go. And then that sort of went a little bit viral, got like a few thousand likes pretty quickly. And then I did one in the history of the $5 note and that went blew up within a couple of days as well. And I was like, okay, there's, there's a niche for people wanting to know about the history of money because people don't really know. People don't look at the coins and notes really said, oh, here's some money, I'll go pay. Or even nowadays, they don't even look at the money at all. They're just like, oh, card, that, go, that's it, done. So I guess that sort of stems from my hobbies back as a kid when I was collecting notes and coins and stamps and my friends making a lot of fun of me. Joel, you're so weird. Joel, why are you so like this? You're so niche <laughs> about these kinds of things. But, you know, there's, there is, and unfortunately, like, coin collecting, note collecting is a dying hobby, which a lot of the boomers were into because that's sort of the thing they would grow into. And so... I know the Royal Australian Mint's been trying hard to get kids into collecting again, that kind of thing. I just thought, okay, how can I keep this sort of hobby alive whilst educating people about the linkages and the relevance it has in their life? And so been doing that for the last, well, now six to eight months now, and it's it's done quite well. I used to run a food blog, which, you know, for about seven years, and that never, never really took off. But then all of a sudden, this TikTok up to yesterday, nearly 2,500 followers, 93,000 likes. And I was like, this is crazy. So. There's there's a niche or there's a there's um, people want to know about it and so it's great for once in my life I don't feel like the weirdo in my friend group and they all want to be like me now so <laughs> that's amazing well you know what that makes me think of it's the people that yeah. have kids that have weird hobbies or not weird hobbies but kids that are teased for having being into music or having a collection or whatever are the people that grow up to be the really interesting and cool adults. But as a kid, you're like getting teased for it, for it, and then as an adult, all of the most interesting people I know are the people that are really passionate about something and have weird hobbies. Yeah, that's it. But Joel, I'm curious. So you mentioned the history of the five dollar note. What is the history yeah. of the five dollar note? Um, that stems in. Let's go back all the way to 1967. So 1966, we moved from pounds, shillings, and pence to dollars and cents. Right. So we went from an, an a predecimal to a decimal system. When the decimal notes came out, it was only the 1, 2, 10, and 20. They did not release the 5 until the year after because there was no equivalent note in the pre-decimal system, which was 
which would have been equivalent of two pounds and ten shillings. So there's no equivalent note in pre decimal. So they released a five dollar note after as a gap between the two and the ten. And that was a paper note that kept in circulation until about nineteen ninety two, where they introduced the first circulating proper circulating polymer five dollar note. And you might remember there was like a palish five dollar note with like the old five dollar note we had until previously, but it was a lighter blue, pinkish, palish colour. And the problem was with that note, people were getting confused with the ten dollar note for some reason, which was released a year later in nineteen ninety three. And so there's a bit of confusion. So in nineteen ninety five, the Reserve Bank decided to recolor it to a more like a pinkish fuchsia colour, which more a lot more brighter, which did distinct out between the five, the ten, the twenty, and the fifty, which was also released in ninety five, and then the hundred was released in ninety six. Then in two thousand one, we released a Centenary of Federation five dollar note, which with Henry Parks in the front and Catherine Helen Spence in the back. That was um, that lasted for a couple of years, and they the Reserve Bank took out circulation in two thousand five, and then obviously in twenty sixteen we saw a new series of banknotes, or the next generation banknote which was they decided to keep the same features of all the banknotes, and the $5 note was the first one to release in September uh, 2016. So it still kept the Queen on the front, still kept the Parliament House in the back, but the designs were more prominent, and they kept a, they, they're the only banknote in the world that has a clear vertical strip from top to bottom in that. So that sort of see the progression in terms of the paper $5 note start from a history where it was designed to fill a gap in the series of banknotes that was created in 1966, and leading to the most, it probably has the most iterations of designs to all the banknotes. So you had the paper, the first polymer, the second polymer, the Centenary Federation, and the current note. So five different versions of that. Wow, that's so interesting. Joel, when you, so you collect notes and you collect money, when a new note is released, I'm imagining like when the Harry Potter books were being released, are you like queuing up at the mint, waiting, like camping out overnight, going, get me that $5 note? Or are you just going out and shopping and paying for everything in cash, hoping that one comes to you? How do you get your hands on a new note when it comes out? This is going to sound more sinister than it really sounds, but I've got a network <laughs> of friends that work in branches across WA, in ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, NAB, whatnot, and they just let me know. It helps when my brother's a branch, also a branch manager as well. So it's like when the fives came out, I said, oh, um, said, Joel, we got the new fives, come out, come in, get, come get them. Like, cool. So I remember <laughs> first day getting a wad, getting $500 worth, and then like, there you go. And then the kids were so excited at school, they, we, they want to organise a banknote swap, so I organised a banknote swap at school. Um, <laughs> tens were pretty, the, tens, the tens were pretty easy to get because I was in Sydney at the time, so I went straight to Reserve Bank in the morning of it and lined up with everyone else and got wow. the $10. Yes, there was a lot of people so lining up for that. So you did up on the day? I did, yeah. 50 was pretty easy. 20 was pretty hard, but I managed to find them in an ATM around the corner from me and that 100 was pretty straightforward. A mate of mine said, oh, we just ordered in half a million dollars of $100 notes. We just loaded ATMs. Come to our ATM and get them. I was like, done. Easy. So, <laughs> oh, my God. So it, it helps like that you have hunt. friends. In, like, yeah, pretty much. And it's I like it. And, and then those friends also get excited as well because I'm excited. So and then people ask me, oh, where's the new notes? Have you got this one? Have you got this one yet? And I was like, leave, leave it to me. I'll tell you where they are. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Joel, what about buying the the notes? Do you use digital or do you use cash? It depends. So obviously, the um, like if I'm getting the bank straight from notes from the banks, I go take from a bank account. Um, some of the older notes, for example. Um, so like the one I got in my pocket right now. I know it's great content for a 
order a medium, but you know, I got the old hundred the other day and I bought it off of eBay. So that was digital. So it's, sometimes it's ironic that I'm paying with digital format to buy cash, but that's the way it is now in this society. You know, we got, you know, 63% of transactions are now done by card. So is that's the way it's going to be? Even having to want cash for my hobby, I'm still going to be pay, paying in a digital form from that. Absolutely. This is really interesting. And it goes to my next question around uh, the current trends about holding cash versus digital. Um, what are we seeing, Joel, at the moment? Uh, uh, we, we've heard there's probably a huge shift towards digital, but now there's a bounce back during COVID. What, what does your analysis uncover? Looking at the data from the Reserve Bank, over the last 13 years, so from 2007 to 2019, Recent cash transactions fall in terms of numbers from 69% to 27% of all transactions in there. On the other hand, cards have increased from 26% up to 63%. So we've, seen, we've literally seen a complete inverse or swap of the trends between cash and um, cards. So, And also along with that, the total value of cash transactions has also reduced from 39% down to 10% as well. So the number of transactions and the total value of cash transactions are falling quite significantly in that. Um, we got to rem- also we need to look at we got to break down where is cash being used in terms of its demographics. So those who are over age of sixty five, they're still using half their transactions through cash. Those who are below the age of nineteen, they're losing. They're using it less than five to ten five to ten percent of their total transactions as well. So you've got a demographic gap in terms of who's using cash, and therefore that demand is still going to be there. But once that older generation sort of, you know, they're, they're no longer here, and then the younger generations bring up the, the, you know, the digital transformation of payments and all that kind of thing, we're going to start, we're going to see a complete fall in cash, but we're not going to see cash go away because, like you said, with COVID, people were scared about what would happen in terms of the banking system. We've got a very strong banking system. We saw that in the global financial crisis where, we had strong reserves. We, we didn't see any banks collapse. We had a government that backs all the deposits up $2 million in that sense. But the demand for cash went up. So in April, the Reserve Bank noticed that a lot of people were taking a large amount of cash out from their accounts. So they were taking, Rabia reported that one person even took out $2 million of cash from, from a branch in advance because of just a, a thing of safety. They, they saw share market was crashing. Let's take it out. Let's bring in cash. Let's put it aside and, and hoard it. So... Especially the high denominator, fifty dollars notes and hundred dollars notes, two million. Someone took two million dollars out of two, once. Yeah. Someone, two, where where are you? Two where million. are you keeping that? Is someone? Are you just putting that in your pool? Putting your pool cover on? Where are you keeping two hundred? <laughs> two million dollars of cash. Two million dollars isn't that much in weight. That's the problem. So in hundred dollar notes, that only weighs about twenty six kilos. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I'm imagining oh, like yeah. a three ton truck. No, Security guards with rifles on the back, driving it from the bank. 26 kilos, that's not much at all. Unless you're getting your $2 million in five cent coins, you're not needing a truck at all, you know? <laughs> um, How much space does that take up? Well, you can easily fit a million dollars in a backpack. That's what I'm trying to say. I I went to Crown wow. Perth once and I saw I saw $1.3 million in a small trolley in all hundreds. It's actually not that big what? in terms of you think it is. Yeah, it's crazy. And like... You know, the banks locally, especially banks that have high traffic, they serve a lot of businesses, they're bringing in half a million dollars a week during peak times to fill their ATMs in with hundreds. So in the scheme of things, we've got $82 billion in notes in circulation. 
So a million dollars actually isn't really that much when you've come to think about it in that sense. But for an individual to hold a million dollars cash, it's still a lot of money as a, in an individual sense. So it's just trying to get our minds in a sense of perspective. But overall, in terms of the trends, I guess what I'm trying to say is that cash demand is increasing for high denomination notes, but as a store of value rather than a transactional sense. $100 notes only make up 3% of total transactions in cash overall. And the other thing, on the other hand, is that coins have also increased in demand because of COVID. People have been hoarding coins because of COVID. People were afraid that was transmission risk through the, trans- for the exchange of coins. So people kept hoarding them. That means when we're back to normal, there was a, a coin shortage. Not as bad as a coin shortage there was in the United States, but we still had a relative coin shortage, which meant that a lot of coins that were hoarded in the mint, they were pushed out. And so there was an increase in demand of about 20% in coinage in 2020. Amazing. That's so interesting. I can when when COVID blows over, I'm, I can imagine going to pay for something at my local cafe and everyone getting out their little coin baggie and counting out the ten silver cents <laughs> to pay for their meals at the end of at the end of the meal. Um, Joel, so we, a lot of people are using savings accounts. Like we, it seems to be that we're moving away from the wads of notes under the mattress as a method mm. of saving. And people team seem to be moving more online where it's really accessible, making savings account and earning interest and stuff. But is it possible to create good savings habits using physical cash? I I definitely think so. I think it's more about there's a book by um James Clear called Atomic Habits, which are, a lot of people mm. who are driven by this habits process is just about creating those regular habits and making them build you a better person. So I think for someone that's finds it very hard to develop good habits in the first place. And I think it depends on the type of learner you are. If you if you are a very kinesthetic learner where you're able to touch and feel things, cash is a good way, especially in terms of budgeting sense and a saving sense. So if you if you feel that you're finding it hard to save in an on an online digital sense because you're so impulsively wanting to spend with your credit card or your debit card, you can try and take a level of cash out and keep that in your wallet as your own all right, this is only how much much I can I can spend in this period because that's how much I've got in my wallet. Is it more people have much more of an emotional connection with cash than they do with credit cards and stuff and that kind of thing. So being able and even just that, like people, you know, you see around TikTok and stuff, they've been showing tips as in, oh, put all your five dollar notes in a jar, put all your gold coins in a jar, or set regular targets in that sense, and then sort of try and transition from the physical sense into the digital sense. So that's what I did. I started in a physical sense and then being able to create separate bank accounts where I can sort of transfer across on a regular basis from this is my sort of spending account or my anything account and I'll just physically transact each day to to my savings goal account. So lately, that's what I've been doing. I'm putting my goal this year is to save an extra $10,000. So the goal now is to save $27.40 a day. Um, I think that's what um your previous guest, um, Tash from Tash Invest, put on TikTok recently where... Twenty-seven forty a day gets you ten thousand dollars a year. Great, and so I've been doing that manually on my online account, and then hopefully later down the track I can go into my mind and say, okay, I can do ongoing transfers and maybe start a new physical goal in that sense. But for me, I love to put all my spare change at the end of the day in a jar. I'll put five dollar notes in a in a ta- in a drawer, and then it, you believe it or not, before you know it, the small gains make big amounts. And that you you could have a hundred dollars worth of coins by the end of the month. You could have a couple hundred bucks of five dollar notes there, you know, and then putting that in your bank account later into your savings account. So if you're someone that finds it very hard to save, try and draw an emotional attachment to what you're trying to do in that sense. 
because there's been a lot of studies that show, especially with um, you know, general experimental psychology back in 2011, they released a study saying that people have a far greater emotional attachment to cash than they do with digital forms of payment. So if you're someone that's very emotional about the way you spend, try and bring that cash element back into it so you can try and rationalize your plan from an emotional sense into a rational sense. Absolutely there, Joel. And uh, it's a topic that, that we really love here on behavioral psychology of money. And uh, I think the reference that you're making is to Dan Ariely's uh, book and uh, the concept of the pain of paying and seeing that physical sort of cash leave your wallet. And uh, you're more likely to have a, a deeper attachment to the cash that you've got that you can touch and feel and see as opposed to the ones and zeros that belong in your digital bank account. That's amazing. Joel, I've I've had a look at your TikTok and one of the awesome things that I've seen mm. that I've never seen before is a gold 50 cent piece. And <laughs> that that looks super baller. But the other thing that I, I really wanted to, to ask you is, are you concerned about inflation or the fact that you're collecting coins? You're probably going to see, you know, your your notes or your stash worth more than, say, you know, the, the coins and the notes that I've got hanging around my home. <laughs> Um, I'm not too concerned about inflation. You know, the RBA has an inflation target of 2 to 3%. They've maintained that same inflation target for the last 36 years or so. Inflation in Australia for the last 10 years has been around 1% to 2%. So I'm not, I'm not too stressed about the inflation value of it. And even then, my collection of currency at the moment is not so much for investment purposes anyway. Most of my investments are in property at the moment. So it's for me, it's a bit of an aesthetic thing. It's a hobby. And I've moved away from collecting into more educating. So I want to try and generate, try and inspire a new generation of coin collectors and note collectors out there and tell them these are things that you should sort of look out for. These are things you maybe should notice or even just generate a little bit of chat amongst friends. So I never noticed, I never noticed this before. And I think what's lately what the, Reserve, the Royal Australian Mint has done well is that the, colored, the new colored $2 coins have been coming out for the last 10 years or so. And we're getting people who were never coin collectors before said, oh, this is interesting. This is beautiful. And then we're finding that some of these coins, especially like the 2012 Coronation $2 coin, they're fetching up to $70 a pop at the moment for just a basic $2 coin. Wow. And I managed to hoard five of those away. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, so people are really getting into, I think what's one of the great marketing tools done by the Reserve of Royal Australian Mint is that people are using coins less. How can we make it more exciting? Let's try and add some color into them as well. And so, yeah, the inflation aspect is a non-matter for me. Um, the issue overall when it comes to, serious coin collectors, especially when you look at investment, is the issue of self-managed super funds. So back around 2010, 2011, um, the um, the ASIC and government changed the self-managed super fund rules. The value of rare notes and coins plummeted massively by about 30%. Because the demand just fell off because they, there was a rule. I'm not sure what the exact rule was, but it had to, it forced a lot of collectors and investors to liquidate their coin collections and note collections to turn them to cash quickly. So a lot of people lost significant amounts of money in those. But now we're starting to see a rebuild now. People are looking to diversify their investments again. So some people, they're looking at the increase in the values of their investments in terms of collecting notes and coins. This is some very, some very valuable ones out there. But I think more so now, people are more so enjoying the aesthetic and the hobby and the discussion that's around it rather than becoming a, making it a more serious investment in that sense. Awesome. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment for those who are listening and can't actually see us right now, which is everybody because it is a podcast medium. If you had any doubt about how passionate Joel is about money, Joel is wearing a custom Australian banknote hoodie that he designed himself 
which is incredible. So I love your mention of money aesthetic because you're clearly very passionate about it. Like you can tell just by looking at you in that incredible jumper. Yeah, I, I, I love this jumper. I just designed it one day and um, honestly, I thought it was a bit of a scam when I designed it. I thought it was the company was, it just gave me this weird PayPal receipt in Chinese characters. Okay, cool. I've lost some money there. But um, three weeks later, it popped up in my mail in a small package. I put it out. So this is great. And I think what's awesome is that I'm the only one in the world that has this. So people have bumped into me in music festivals and, and the shops and restaurants and say, oh, where do you get this from? It's like, I made it myself. I'm like, I want to contact the Reserve <laughs> Bank and say, can I license the design and we can make a split on the in the profits on this hoodie? You know, it could be, you know, start a new trend in because, you know, it, I love it. It's, it's, it's unique. So but it does it shows how passionate about I am about this hobby. Yeah, it's awesome. It's an epic part of your collection. Joel, what is to you the most interesting coin or note or money-related object you've collected or what's the most unique thing in your collection and how big is your collection? Um, the collection I have now is nowhere near as was as big as it was maybe about five years ago. Um, I I started designing my classroom with a whole bunch of notes and coins and put up this big money wall in the classroom. And when we when our school moved, when my classroom moved to a new building, I started divesting a lot of my collection. Like, oh, kids, last day of school, take whatever you want for the wall. There's nothing overly rare and stuff. All this rare stuff I've got is at home safe under lock and key in that sense. But it's nowhere near, near big as it was. It was actually a lot bigger when I was probably in my teenage years. And then through uni, I sort of lost interest and then got back into it recently. But in terms of the most interesting ones, I guess the coloured coins are very interesting to me. Um, this Royal Australian Mint has produced a lot of coloured coins throughout the years, um, but lately they've really got into it. And some of them, um, the 2012 set had a very, had a specially coloured, selective coloured 50 cent coin. So literally every state emblem on the coat of arms was coloured to its right colour. Um, the kangaroo and the emu was coloured in there. And then they did that with a dollar coin as well. So the, the color of the kangaroo is brown and there's a green background and stuff. So I really love the colored coin because the technology behind it is so interesting because there's a, it's a called pad printing process. So they mint the coins, put them on a giant pad, and then they just sort of print the color on like they would on a printing machine. But obviously the color stays on the coins from there. So the colored coins are probably my favorite. I do have a big interest in um, Malaysian currency as well because that's what my family's background from there. So there's a lot of history about it because a lot of colonial history that transformed into independence and their banknotes tell a lot of story from the colonial years right through independence right through to today. So mostly, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a favourite favorite item, but the cold coins and the Malaysian notes are probably the ones that stand out for me the most. Joel, as a teacher, uh, you'd see firsthand what people do and don't learn at school. And last week we had a guest, the Aussie yeah. Bunny Man, who went through what he wishes was taught at school and what do you see popping up firsthand in class and what do you want students to learn and take away? I think that we are underestimating the ability of our kids and our children and our students in what they want to learn about money. I get questions all the time about what should I invest in or where should I invest in or what do I do in terms of what are my rights at work? What are um, what are some ways that I can earn more money? You know, they're not looking of how to save they know they sort of know that right they can self-learn a lot of these basic skills now we still need to teach them but we need to teach all that stuff earlier so what we're trying to teach in the later years through and there's actually no set curriculum that does that there's no set 
Australian national curriculum that has a financial literacy component. It's like, oh, how do you calculate compound interest in math? That's it. Or how do you identify some currency in year three or four humanities? It's not, it's nowhere near enough. And that, therefore, when when our, when the children go into their adult years, there's such a knowledge gap in the literacy, in terms of the financial literacy. And it's really, really frustrating. So they want to learn how to, I think the most important thing is that they're going to be working first before they're earning money. So what are their rights at work? What mm. are the things they need to learn regarding the national employment standards and all that kind of thing? They want, they want to know how to manage their money. So how do they want to grow their wealth in that sense? So what are some ways that they can invest? What are some ways that they can start planning towards the bigger purchases and that kind of thing? So getting them to learn how to buy a car, ask, learning them or teaching them um, how do they rent a house? How do they save for a house? How do they, what is the process between buying a house in that sense? Yeah, they may be 15, 16, 17 or earlier, but they want to know this stuff. We're getting kids to fill out a tax tax file number at 15, but yet they don't know what their rights of work are. So there's such a disparity between what we want our kids to be, to be able to do and then suddenly they turn 18, oh, you should know all this already. Oh, you need to go and self-learn this stuff. And the resources aren't being there taught. So some schools are doing a great job in pushing that forward. So a mate of mine, Kareem, who teaches at Ashdale Secondary College, he's doing amazing stuff in collaboration with Scott Pate, the Barefoot Investor, where they've developed an awesome financial literacy program that stems from year 9, 10, 11, 12 in that sense. I'm about developing one with my oh, school wow. as well. Um, yeah, and so it, it, it in the end it comes down, if your school has the resources and the staff that are passionate to be able to push this forward, be able to push their management to giving time in their timetable to be able to teach them financial literacy. But I think it needs to go further. We need to be able to lobby our members of parliament and be able to lobby the right people to start implementing a fixed financial literacy curriculum within the national curriculum in that sense. Yes, teachers are very stressed out. There's It's time poor, but we need to be able to find more effective ways or more effective tools to be able to educate our children in basic financial literacy skills. And so whether it means into creating a massive digital resource hub that all the resources that they're given for the teachers to do that and then be able to deliver small lessons or workshops or or lectures in that sense. Make it easy for us to be able to help our students with these to develop the skills. Because, well, it's great that you can go and learn geometry, trigonometry, physics, whatever, but what's what's going to – how's that – really going to help you when you're looking to buy your first house how's that going to help you when you're facing a dispute with your employer and you don't know what your rights of work are so we've got a long way to go joel if you came across a a magic bottle and a genie came out and you were given one wish what would it be for financial literacy the ultimate dream is to be able to have the federal government put in all the resources possible to develop a national financial literacy program so that means creating the resources or, or getting people involved to help create resources, giving the funding to the schools to deliver the program. So whether it be allocating money for relief lessons, allocating extra funds for another teacher to teach it across several schools mm-hmm. and be able to, you know, keep a system in place, maybe maybe not some form of system, but some way of being able to track a student's way of, of students' um, progress in understanding their financial literacy or their progress in understanding their financial literacy from there. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's classifying opportunity costs. The government could spend all that money on that, but where is it going to be missing out on? But I feel like our government spending priorities aren't right at the moment in a lot of things. I feel this could save our, you know, children's future 
in them being given that right skills so they don't make bad decisions in the future from there. Here, here. <laughs> here. Here. Cheers. <laughs> Joel, we've talked about the history of money, which is absolutely fascinating. And as we look ahead mm. to the future of money, um, crypto seems to have taken off and it seems to have become a little, more, a little bit more pervasive than, say, it was, say, three or four years ago. And it's becoming yeah. more part of the mainstream conversation. What's your views of crypto and, and do you see that as the future of money? I'm I'm a very risk-averse person, unfortunately. But I guess in the last six months, I've seen a lot of financial products that have been able to give you, give. I think my big, my big mind when I'm looking at investments and looking to spend is liquidity, right? Am I able to readily turn this into cash? And seeing some products lately where you're able to get access to crypto accounts, being able to give an access to a debit card that links to that crypto account is able to, you know, you're able to access the liquidity straight out a lot more easier. Seeing the crash the other day when the crypto price went down $5,000, that still scares me. The volatility in something like that, you're not going to see the same thing in currency markets at all. You know, it's, it's not, I haven't seen a crash like that since the British pound crashed 20% back in the 80s. You know, it's not, it's very, it, sorry, it still worries me about, what is the basis of crypto and where is it coming from in terms of its deriv- its derived value in that, right? But I do see the potential future in that. Once we can make it a more stable system and that most importantly, that needs to be government backing of a crypto system, then it can work. Because if there's a government backing on the value of cash in itself, which actually is also technically derived on nothing, it's not fixed on gold anymore, anything like that, if crypto can be transformed into the future when we're looking at I don't know how long it'll be. Trans- technology has allowed the transformation rates to become a lot more quicker and a lot more faster. We could see it in 20 years. We could see it in 50 years. We've seen countries now that are virtually going cashless, like Sweden, for example. They've gone very com- nearly completely cashless there. Iceland, the same thing as well. So crypto has a future, but there needs to be appropriate government backing and prudential regulation behind it in order to gain my trust in the system from there. Amazing. Joel, I have one final question for you. And... I have written down here money and cricket. Why is that a money and cricket related? I know you're a big cricket fan. I know you're a big money fan. Are they related? What's what's with that? I guess I guess the only relation with that is that when you go for me who's been a cricket cricket captain for quite a while, you go out there and play on a Saturday. This Saturday's forty one degrees. I don't want to play at all, but still have to. You go out for the toss, you flip the coins, right? That's it. But Australia's cricket, I think the, the linkage between cricket and currency is that cricket's a fabric of our nation and there's been a lot of, I guess, items that have been created. So the first thing was a 2001 20-cent coin commemorate the um, passing of Sir Donald Bradman. We created coins for the Ashes, a few of them. We created coins for the Cricket World Cup. And I think the most favourite one was in 2020, the Royal Australian Mint created a coloured $2 coin to celebrate the ICC Women's World 2020 um, World Cup. And that was important because it gained or it gave prominence to women's sport and women's cricket to a much greater popular. So I see there's not just so much linkage between cricket and money, but being able to educate people about things that they don't know much about before, it's got such huge potential. So I don't see linking to the cryptocurrency stuff. I don't see cash dying anytime soon. It's going to be used less, but there's ways to still use cash in terms of creating numismatic products that people can buy or to educate people or to be used as a store of wealth in that sense. So, yeah, there's always going to be a linkage with cricket and coins because we've got to toss a coin before play. But it's more so 
using currency to educate people about different issues. So we had the Firefighters $2 coin come out recently. Um, this year, there's going to be an Indigenous flag $2 coin that's coming out. So it's it's a colour coin with black on the top half, red on the bottom half, and then the gold centre to represent a, the, oh. the, the Aboriginal flag in its 50th anniversary. So that's going to be awesome. So coins being used to educate people about social issues is, is one of my favourite things to teach people about, which is great. That sounds super awesome. Will you be lining up to get your hands on the Indigenous flag coin? I've already got it. I've got it in the 2021 um, mint set already, so I'm pretty happy. Nice. Very nice. Well, yeah. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. That was super interesting. I, I I mean, obviously, we all like money, but I had no idea that it had such a rich and fascinating history. Joel, if our listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Um, they can find me on TikTok under the history of money at the history of money, or if you want to reach out in a professional sense, you can find me on LinkedIn under Joel Kandia K A N D I A H. All right, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. We hope you enjoy the rest of your school holidays and all the best with your collecting for the years ahead. Brilliant. Thanks, Blaze. Thanks, Dan. Absolute pleasure to be with you guys today. Thanks, Joel. Talking about money, what do you think of our chat with Joel? Oh, my goodness, Blaze. I've never come across somebody that is so passionate about currencies and coins. It just uh, Obviously, the audience can't say this, but if you saw Joel, I mean, the guy was up and about, really super excited and incredibly knowledgeable. He knew about so many things. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I think uh, people who are currency collectors and do have a passion about something, I mean, Joel is just the absolute exemplary person in that category. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I've got to go check out the Perth Mint because some of these collectibles, I've just, I was on the website before, are just absolutely amazing, um, especially mm-hmm. um, certain colors that have been introduced to make things really exciting, but great memorability probably had into your kids. And you know what? There is going to have some value being some type of collectible. So I think right, all the power to him and the stuff that Joel's doing at school with students and getting the students involved, I thought it was absolutely amazing. I think the really thing that that came home though was just his view on financial education within the school system and curriculum. This is something that's incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, I didn't have any financial education in school. I'm not sure if you did, Blaze. Uh, Joel seems uh, to be. No, I can't do. I can't do basic math, so no. <laughs> <laughs> but you are very creative. Um, Joel, I think, is on a mission and a crusade to help somebody in the Australian government wake up and Mm. say, guys, we need a fully accredited financial education program that's part of the school curriculum that every single student goes through, uh, be that in primary school or high school, that can set people up for their journey into adulthood. And it it couldn't be more true today than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So that was my big takeaway. How about yours? Uh, My big takeaway was, number one, that was a sick hoodie. The the custom-made Australian note hoodie, amazing. And my second biggest takeaway was that a million dollars fits in a backpack. Like, what is with that? I still can't picture a million dollars fitting in a backpack. I still see, like, a big three-ton truck, armed security on the back. So, yeah, Joel, fascinating guy. Let's have him back in the future to talk more about currency. Absolutely. Well, that's all we've got time for today, folks. Please remember to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single podcast. 
If you want to get in touch, feel free to reach out to us via Instagram. Our handle is at getwemoney. Don't forget, if you're looking to take better care of your finances and want a simpler way to do it, then download the We Money app today on the Google or Apple Play stores. We'll catch you next week on We Talk Sense. See you later. See ya.